One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Stephen, I think we probably do have to talk about Europe and we certainly do have to talk about the Chilcot Inquiry, but let's park them for the moment and start by, I've elevated here something that was sent to us as a You Ask Us, because I think it's probably something that we, we've sort of talked a lot about Labour and, and its various travails, but let's let's ask the big question, right, which is, is there a future for the Labour Party? Should the Corbyn part of the Labour Party splinter off the other, the I guess what you would call a soft left to centrist part of the Labour Party. It's something that kind of is now getting columnized about with varying degrees of success. But let's knock its tyres and see whether or not it is actually in any way a starter. My starting point is money on that one. Um, I mean, I know you think that the union funding is is ebbing away, right? So that's becoming less and less important in Labour's long-term calculations. That does change the sort of strategic calculation, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, so a combination of the trade union bill and the fact that so far none of the trade unions uh, have really found a way to reverse the decline of trade unionism. The, the, you know, kind of Unite appears to be growing a bit, but... That some a lot of that's through merger, and some of that is through their Unite Community scheme. So they're not actually paying subs. Usdor, um, which is mainly shops, I mean, it is growing, but it, obviously it's in retail. It has to grow in order to stand still. So to and to be frank, uh, if Usdor is the future of trade of the trade union movement, it, it's good for some of the people who are represented by Usdor, but it is not going to be bankrolling a successful political party and that can say, compete nationally anytime soon. The trade union bill was sort of explicitly designed to make it harder for that money to automatically go to political parties, right? You have to now opt in yeah. and, and actually actively choose to contribute subs. Um, so that's not necessary. So the private donors, you have to presume, would not go to the Corbyn if there were I mean okay so let's presumably the split this is my this is where I my main problem with the split happens is if you presume a split that is essentially between I'm going to call it the hard left which I know some people think is pejorative but I think it's probably the most useful way to think of it is between this very strongly anti-austerity anti-foreign intervention um, you know very great social welfare very relaxed about immigration part of the party mm-hmm. What's the other faction? Because my worry is that the other faction is represented by a kind of, you know, Yvette Cooper, Stella Creasy, Tom Watson. And that to me is not, I wouldn't say exactly a metropolitan liberal, but it certainly isn't the big schism which is voters in, you know, voters in Sunderland, say, or North Wales who went for vote leave, who I think are, 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 I'm thinking that Labour's big problem is the split between 
you know the 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 sort of UKIP leaning voters in places like Grimsby or Doncaster, and actually what bit of the party would break off that would represent them? Yeah, I mean that is. I mean, so there are lots. So I think yeah, the things people talk about with the problems with the split are money. Actually, that that wouldn't be a problem. Uh, you know, the the Corbyn bit of the party uh, has is is very successfully maximised the amount that its members are giving, uh, putting making its financials more rosy uh, through things like what like momentum and through momentum, but also just call their fundraising team just calling people around saying, "I see you joined in the leadership election. You've joined paying twelve quid a month." Yeah, and then you ask people like how much they're earning and the idea is you basically have like bans for how much which is something they nick from the obama campaign isn't it that sort of micro targeting where you go okay this person earns fifty thousand pounds a year therefore i'm going to ask them for 50 quid this person earns 15 i'm going to ask them for 15 quid and you know the thing it's very important to remember because we often and i've done this a lot tend to characterize it as a split between the parliamentary party and the grassroots about 40 percent of the grassroots is anti-corbyn it's corbyn skeptic uh are I prefer the term Corbyn sceptic to moderate because I think moderate is a slightly unfair tilting to the pro, which is pro Corbyn sceptic, and obviously to Blairite, which is a tilting which is anti Corbyn sceptic. Also, both moderate and Blairite, I think, suggest a level of unanimity among mm. Corbyn's critics that isn't really there. I mean, this is the thing: is like, what do Yvette Cooper and Stella Creasy agree on? policy-wise than they don't also agree with uh, Jeremy Corbyn on. Like the kind of Reeves-McDonnell approach to the economy is a consensus position throughout the Labour Party. There are some tactical arguments about the best way to expose that the conservative approach doesn't work. Is it that you say, okay, brilliant, you can keep your promise, and then you kind of try and lash them to the mast of deficit reduction, or is it to draw a big dividing line? But the second you get beyond those bits, they don't agree on immigration. They don't really agree on the EU. They don't agree on free move. So that's not really a joint party anyway. And then exactly as you say, if if there was to be a party which which was to split off from Labour then would succeed, it would be hugely pro the monarchy, because let's face it, it's still Britain. Hugely pro the armed forces. Armed forces. Tough on, you know, like, you know, very tough on crime, closed borders... It would actually be the kind of David Blunkett half of the New Labour coalition, as it were. The problem is, is that basically the whole of the Labour Party's upper tier, regardless of whether it is Corbynite or Corbyn sceptic, basically wants to offer something to its to its voters like me, basically. Yeah, I mean, here's my problem. I think that a Labour Party that will, will succeed in getting a majority, I mean, a very tough thing for a Labour Party to do if without winning back huge chunks of Scotland, which seems to be not happening. Um, I mean, it's got to win over kind of Kensington, basically, to do without Scotland, seats that they haven't won even in 1997. Um my problem with that is that it's going to have to be something that is very unpalatable to people like you and me. And let's face it, like left-wing people on Twitter. And the question is, you know, can you can you possibly, you know, what leader is kind of brave enough to ignore all the Labourite columnists and commentators, all the people who are at the tops of think tanks, and is going to offer something that is much more authentically, culturally conservative, actually, than, than you or I or people like us would like. I mean, it's going to be a very, it's going to have to be an anti-elite, slightly populist party in a way, isn't it? And then, to be honest, like, and, you know, no offence to, you know, some, some, some of my best friends are, uh, are, are fairly, uh, what's it face, uh, Metropolitan Elite Labour MPs, but... Um, to be honest, if you wanted to do that, it's difficult to see 
who how you get a shadow cabinet that yeah ignore imagine from an all 232 Labour MPs have the same politics, and so you can just assemble the best team based on uh, where your voters are. It's very difficult to see where you'd get a shadow cabinet that could sell that message. So one of the many problems, ignoring my moral and, and wonkish objections to a, a, a border control-based platform, is that, you know, let's say Jeremy Corbyn decided to embrace border control, he would look uncomfortable. His closest ally is, is a black woman who has a history of being pro-immigration. Um, that's not going to look very convincing. Is Clive Lewis going to look convincing as an advocate of closed borders? Ditto, yeah, let's, let's imagine you had Kat like a... Smith, uh, uh, yeah, Richard Bergen. Yeah, like, you know, and then let's imagine like a splinter party. You know, Emma Reynolds, you know, hugely talented MP, massive pro-European. Chukaramuna, Stella Creasy. Like, the idea that any of these people go, oh, border control, and anyone's going to believe them is obviously for the birds. And in some ways, um, I, I mean, I also think the thing, the thing with like the the idea of a Labour of a split, it's a bit like the problem with people saying, oh, why don't they just go for PR? And I say this as someone who who still is a massive believer in electoral reform, right? Is then what people are saying is, I can't stand this half of the Labour Party. What we should do is split. So instead of having to negotiate with each other every day, we just have to negotiate after every election. So it doesn't get away from the problem of getting either 41% of the vote under first past the post or 50% of the vote uh, in, it also in a doesn't PR system. get away from the fact that no government that is elected under first past the post is going to willingly usher in PR. So this is why I've really come round to the Johnny Reynolds uh, approach to electoral reform, which is where you have the additional member system. One, I like the additional member system because I think it's intuitive and it's important for people to be able to... So this is the one that's used in uh, Scotland, for example. So you have a list and a constituency. So you still get someone you can say, that is my MP, they care. And they do, still yeah. do pious tweets about like, oh, it's great to be in the Northwest today. But then you also top up the parliament. With... Yeah, which basically adjusts the proportionality. So to take a, a really good example, let's take say Brighton, right? There are th three seats in, in sort of the Brighton and Hove area. We kind of know that statistically there ought to be one Green MP, one uh, Labour MP and one Conservative MP. At the moment, as it happens, that is what Brighton has got via first past the post. But there will be sometimes with boundary changes or, you know, my assumption is, is when Caroline Lucas steps down from parliamentary politics, the Greens will probably hold that seat, but they would, yeah, it would be harder without her personal following. What you do is you then ensure that basically you'll always get a Green MP out of Brighton, you'll always get a Green MP out of uh, the bit of uh, Hackney where I live, etc., etc. Um, you will always get some UKIP MPs out of the, the north of England and small towns in the south. This is the thing I think is um, really important is that, I, you know, much so I don't want UKIP MPs, people have, you know, it is absolutely essential that UKIP voters see a point to that UKIP vote. They see somebody, they see somebody who is talking about policies, talking about things that they're trying to deliver, right? I think that's one of the things that is... I mean, people always say, oh, the trouble with PR is it would deliver 80 UKIP MPs. Well, yeah, but then the next... A, people wouldn't vote UKIP just knowing that there was never a chance of them actually getting an MP. It would take away the power of the protest vote there. And B, in the same way that actual collision with actually running councils stuffed the BNP because they were useless at sorting out people's bins, 
you might see people who went, well, it was all very well. I wanted to make this point about anti-immigration, but actually this person's just a rubbish MP. And actually, I, yeah. you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to make my, my feelings clear that much that I'm willing to actually have somebody who I think is lazy and useless and claiming their salary and not turning up. But the other advantage with AMS is that without wishing to be cynical about why people oppose first past, uh, oppose change first past, is that it creates winners in it. It gives representation to parties which are already there. But the difficulty that AV had in electoral reform is you will have a bulk of Labour MPs in the inner cities and much of the north and Conservative MPs in the suburbs and much of the south who are like, uh, sorry, I quite like my guaranteed majority of 10,000. Those people don't lose out, so you you are both both more proportional, but you don't you get rid of the vested interest that is going to oppose the change. So I think it is more you're more likely to secure AMS than any other form of electoral reform. Can I take a moment to say something that I found out this week that is to me amazing and astonishing and horrifying, which is that despite the European Parliament trying to say like, well, you know, tighty bye, the UKIP MEPs are staying in the European Parliament as long as they possibly can, potentially until 2019 when the next set of European elections come up, you know, and they will they will continue. I mean, they already had some of the worst attendance records ever. There was an amazing bit where, um, I'm going to forget his surname, Guy Verhofstadt, the former Prime Minister of Belgium, said, look, you know, I'd like to see the biggest drain on the European Union budget, your salary taken back, Nigel Farage. But I mean, can you, I mean, in the, in the brass neck terms, that is the brassiest, neckiest thing that I've seen in some time. I don't know, so don't throw something at me, but I think it's fair enough. What? So they people do not vote for UKIP MEPs believing that they are going to be good Europeans, right? Like, I think, you know, voters behave in contradictory ways, but I simply don't believe there is a caucus of UKIP supporters in the European elections out there who are aggrieved to learn that UKIP MEPs clock in and clock out. There is a caucus of me who is upset to learn that. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they have a mandate for for four years. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe that is maybe that's the ultimate. You know, after me being not feeling I was being nice by saying we ought to have UKIP MPs because people have voted for them. Maybe the point is if people want to vote for lazy sods to toss about taking eighty three thousand pounds of taxpayers' money for doing basically sod all apart from making self regarding speeches, then that's the glorious pageant of democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's a bit like. I mean, it's a bit like Labour's present discontents. There is no slant you can put on the performance in by-elections. You know, we're talking well below the increases Ed Miliband saw. We're talking the first uh, opposition to lose council seats since 1985. There is no slant which is good. However... There are. There are slants that are good. This is all I get on Facebook all day long, which is like, actually, you know, we've held every by-election that we, that we contested. Yes, but that's not a realistic slant. No, I know, but, I know. But, but and then you go, well, if Labour lost tooting, then I really think you probably might as well pack up and all go but, home. But what I, what I mean is, is that there's no slant you can put on it where you're not sort of, you know... Cherry picking. Cherry picking, yeah, when you're not sort of torturing a statistic so hard and the UN's going to intervene. Um, however, he, he does have a, you know, a, a fairly strong mandate under the rules. Personally... Do I think that there ought to be a bit in Labour's rules where if you lose a confidence vote among your MPs, you're automatically out? Yes, unfortunately, whatever genius wrote Labour's rules <laughs> decided to give the PLP the ability to no-con someone, but not for that no-con to be binding. I mean, that is literally like having a clause in your rules where you're just like, intermittently, we may shoot ourselves in the foot. 
What is the point of having the ability to no-con people if it doesn't get rid of them? I would what like you to find the person who wrote those revised labour rules and bring them into the podcast that we can pelt them with rotten fruit. Okay, so ultimately, my belief is that is what means that the Labour Party splitting is a, is still a non-star. I just don't think that things have changed. I think that there would be still so much... People so much believe that you get 20% of the vote just by having a, a, the word Labour next to your name that they won't break away and start a new party. Then again, I went back and obviously look at that SDP election the first time after they broke off. Yeah. They got a shed load of votes. I mean, I know they got screwed by first past the post, but I wonder if that happened again with a new party like that, whether or not that would be... I don't know, it might be enormously alienating for a lot of left-wing people and they might start, you know, they might become a big kind of well of populist anger about it for if that that happened again i mean i think so the interesting thing is so the number of swing voters has gone up since 1983 uh there's a very good book coming out soon more sex lies in the ballot box which has the exact figures which i really recommend uh buying when it comes out uh but there are more swing voters available however social democracy has never been more unpopular throughout europe i mean the interesting thing is my instinct is is if i If I were betting, I would say actually, perversely, if the Corbynite wing were to split, which feels unlikely because I can't see how he would lose a leadership election, but if the Corbynite wing were to split, set set itself up as a separate party, the European precedent suggests that actually they would do quite well. They might, of course, break themselves on the altar of first past the post, but... Mostly, and particularly because in Britain we tend to get into these continental trends well, a bit late politically. The other thing I want to ask you is, is I'm not entirely sure that that movement would survive the stepping down of Jeremy Corbyn. I think this is factored very heavily into calculations about what happens if they go to another ballot of the members, right? That there is a reluctance to say, well, I will anoint an heir. I, you know, John McDonnell will get a place in the ballot. Clive Lewis will get a ballot. Because I think so much of it is not just about a general feeling of anti-austerity, but a personal investment in the idea of Jeremy Corbyn as, you know, a really straight guy who never claimed too many expenses, who didn't seem to be in it to, you know, part of himself, who seems, you know, incredibly unspun and unpolished. And how much of that outlives him as a person? I mean, that is kind of the great unknown, not least because... So one of the difficulties I have is I try and talk to uh, members, and I, by the way, I know that there are several emails asking me to come and speak, which I've ignored, <laughs> uh, but I will get back to them. And if I haven't got back to you, just harass me. I'm disorganised and useless. But the, the the thing I really notice is one. The problem is, is the second you start asking people, so how do you feel about this? You're, you know, you're you're kind of encouraging them to think to be mean about it. Um, but the second is, is then basically, I, there there are definitely two groups within well three groups within jeremy's support there's people who would describe themselves as the hard left and are proud to be so mm-hmm. that's by far the smallest group then there are the other two groups one which i'd say is politically engaged yeah it's left wing it's kind of the average labor member it thinks very deeply about policy then there's the second group which is kind of basically click here to have a a, a nicer labor party it doesn't turn up to Labour Party meetings. It doesn't go out canvassing. It hasn't integrated into the the the, the party that was right. And I think some of that constituency is also people who um, are members of other parties, right? Yeah. If you hang out on the Jeremy Corbyn Facebook page, you see a lot of people going like. It's really annoying because I really wanted to join the Labour Party to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but I can't because I'm a Green member. Or a member of the Women's Equality Party or whatever. And you go, but no, but you, you, you 
don't understand how parties work. But the but the question the, the thing the thing that we we cannot know with any confidence is how how big those two uh, different groups are, um, and also. I, yeah, we can tell from the YouGov poll of members, I can tell from calling around that there has been some disillusionment uh, with Jeremy. It has not been accompanied with any increase in affection with the alternatives to, to Jeremy. And but- I think there is an increase as well in not necessarily just that, but also in, um, okay, well, it's not what I would have happened. I think they've been horrible and disloyal to him. But actually, let's be realistic about the situation in which we now find ourselves, right? People who are no less enthused about Jeremy, but recognise that the situation has, has changed fundamentally after that no confidence vote. Yeah, I mean, including some of the second wave of, well, third wave of resignations from the shadow cabinet, um, which I will write about in more detail soon. But, but effectively, it's Fabian a mis- Hamilton. It's a, it's basically a, mis- on. a misnomer to talk about it is coup singular. There were two planned coups, coup. a third coup. kind of coup. Stephen coup. I can't help it. I went. You were like, well, well, Cockney in it. Yeah, born, yeah. In, born within the Sambo Bells. And I really ought to be able to do an accent I had until the age of about 16. But It was good. No, I thought it was very good. Oh, okay. It didn't go too Dick Van Dyke and Mary oh, Poppins okay. at all. Um, but, um, the, you know, the, the, the crucial thing is, is we can't really tell how big these groups are. Uh, we can't tell how these groups will respond to the future. But my my instinct is that, yeah, that Corbynism probably wouldn't survive... Jeremy, partly because the the interesting trend within the Labour Party is the right of the Labour Party has never been able to regenerate itself. It has only got talent by the party going to the left, inspiring a bunch of people, losing. Those people who were inspired move a bit to the right. Yeah, so Harold Wilson, Alistair Darling. Yeah, you see it throughout the history of, of the Labour Party. Only the Labour left can rejuvenate uh, I, wow, I have managed to upset everyone in the Labour Party with no, that little good. thing. No, good. I think that's a really... Like, own, yeah, but so my instinct is that a lot of the people who were inspired by him, you, we might go, oh, Corbynism didn't last long. But my instinct is what we may end up doing is going, I can't believe that some illiberal home secretary of a future left government used to be a Jeremy Corbyn supporter. Labour, the Labour's right has never had a second great team, as it were. They've never, yeah, like they've never kicked on. And, and but that's good. But also, I think it's it's been a real the rise of Corbynism has been a real challenge. Then, which one, which the Labour right have not yet answered. Which is okay. So learn to argue with those people, like who who really think that you are whatever they think you are. That they think you're all you know illiberal, warmongering, you know Austerians. You have to be better at your arguments. And this thing, some of the younger MPs on the right of the party are, I think, becoming better politicians because of what has happened. I think Chukaramuna has definitely become a much better performer and articulating what he believes. Yeah, and the interesting, if you see how his CLP with the same people has started to move towards him, and that, yeah, that that is an, an interesting development. Um, but in terms of the other interesting test within the Labour Party, which is like a way the you know the glass half full, glass half empty. I've realised that the best test with that with Labour MPs is to ask the Andrea Leadsom, Theresa May question. Uh, and obviously, if you're an optimist, you go Andrea Leadsom because we could definitely beat her. And if you're a pessimist in the Labour Party, you're like, Theresa May, because if we don't win, I mean, let's have the person who I think would be terrible but wouldn't actually leave a smoking crater in Downing Street. Um, and segueing smoothly from that to the Conservatives in Europe. Shall we talk about the Conservatives in Europe? Yeah, let's go on. Let's give it a let's give it a quick whirl. Although um, we are talking uh, with the second round ballot coming up. Well, I was going to say second round, but second and final round ballot, right? Yeah. It is now 
In the red corner, Michael Gove, the man who will, was it, go to war with three countries at once, as Ken Clark put yeah. it rather magnificently yesterday, versus Andrea Ledsom, who may, it turns out, have given her CV a little spit and polish to make her sound self. I was more uh, impressed by her stint as editor of The New Statesman. That was a, <laughs> came as a surprise to me. But yeah, so she's, she, it appears that her career in finance may not quite have been what it what it yeah there's a bit where she's sort of essentially marketing manager but she seems to have held a more impressive director type title but yeah which is just which is usual given that Ian Duncan Smith got away with saying basically that he'd been to a university that he'd gone to for a short course it's not you know it's not out of the realm of possibility that, that this wouldn't be that upsetting to people but um uh yeah I think it's I think I think your your division is really interesting because I think most people on the left are former colleague Raphael Bear had a column in the Guardian saying like you know at least at least Theresa May looks like she could actually you know she wouldn't like you say leave a smoking hole in Downing Street or indeed in you know half the Middle East yeah. or in or the city of London by imposing some ludicrous Brexit deal um and I think that's that's difficult because I'm I'm keeping my sticky beak well out of this one online because I think for us, there's no point saying anything nice about any Tory politician, right? Even in comparative terms. Because people will go, how can you support Theresa May when she's deported all these students or she's overseen Yarls Wood? And you go, well, I well, I don't, really. Like, I wouldn't vote for her. That's because I'm not, you know, I'm not a, to- a Tory voter. But I'm telling you, comparatively, that if it was the choice between Andrea Leadsom, who thinks that businesses with fewer than three employees shouldn't have the minimum wage... Uh, or maternity rights and, and single mothers lead inevitable inevitably to criminality yeah, exactly because their babies' brains don't develop property who I'm not entirely sure believes in climate change who abstained on gay yeah, marriage she... um you know or do I want Theresa May who seems if anything her gravest sin is being kind of slightly boring then yeah he- hello Theresa I mean, May it, it comes back to that thing that um P.G. O'Rourke said about why he was voting for Hillary over Trump uh which is you know the Theresa May is wrong, but she's wrong about things which I believe exist in the real world. I'm not necessarily certain that is something I could say with confidence about her opponent. My instinct is Michael Gove will not make it through to the final round. Yeah, I just I think it's an interesting question about whether or not Theresa May would try and lend MPs in order to be up against him. But that's been something that people have waffled around. There are two reasons I wouldn't. If I was her, I would think... The guy's, I'm going to say a maniac, but like he's proved that he can do a serious amount of damage to people. He's not constrained by any kind of gentleman's rules. So why would you want to risk going up against that? Yeah. And secondly, it's much easier to run the anti-Ledsome campaign where you just go, oh, no, I'm sure she's perfectly nice, but she's just not ready yet, really, whereas I've been Home Secretary. It's a much easier one rather than having to run this fella's a nutter, don't vote for him, in terms of what the Tory party wants to hear at a time when it feels quite wounded and fractured. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, so according to both YouGov polls, which YouGov are very reliable at polling politically motivated people, I would treat both of those as, 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 as kosher, they both start massively behind Theresa May. She beats Letson by 30 points, Gove by 40 points. The difference is, is they've seen Gove over a long period and they've basically decided they don't like him. Whereas you can see how Andrea Letson might be able to fight an astute campaign to defeat her. However, exactly as you say... Um, She's Michael- got all the most dislikable Tories on her side. That's what yeah. puts me against that idea that she... You know, if she'd got some really interesting, smart... And, you know, if Stephen Crabb had gone behind her, for example, you'd sort of think, OK, this is quite interesting. But, you know, she's got Bill Cash. She's got Ian Duncan Smith. She's got, you know, UKIP donor Aaron Banks saying that she would be his preferred candidate. That doesn't feel to me like a big open offer to, you know, everyone, really. Yeah, e- even to everyone within the Conservative 
uh, membership. I think it is too narrow. Yeah, and there was another poll of Servation. And again, Servation is not a pollster that I would stake uh, my, uh, my, my salary on. But again, they are fairly good at polling political people. They have a poll of conservative councillors where she is miles ahead against both of them. It makes sense for her to defeat the rival who is perceived as being stronger, who also I think will do less damage. She will just fight a, you know, a Coca-Cola against Pepsi. I'm the real thing. Don't vote for um for this this woman. She won't get into the left-right stuff because she'll know that there are Tories who are as concerned about Andrea Leadsom as basically everyone in the Labour Party is. Yeah, but it, uh, I but, mean, it, but it, they will—they are just gonna have to vote for Theresa May no matter what she does or says. So. Yeah, it, it's a much less bruising campaign to fight, and it steers you away from having to give away loads of hostages in your Brexit negotiations. You would hope if you can kind of constantly run. My question is, why didn't that campaign work for Yvette Cooper? That was Yvette Cooper's campaign, was right? it? Wasn't it like I? Yes, you may say I am slightly uncharismatic, but I am a steady hand on the tiller. Was she? I mean, so, <laughs> no, no. I, so I'm, I'm sorry. I think I think there are a couple of uh, big differences. One, if you talk to most civil servants about Theresa May, they are glowing, glowing. Yeah. If you talk to most civil servants about Yvette Cooper, they are glowing in a radioactive sense. Uh, two, I mean. And this is a very interesting you ask us and I'm going to address uh, on the blog because it's it's quite an interesting question. But basically, if they had the Conservative system, it would have been the two with the most MP support. Andy Burnham versus Yvette Cooper. It is a fascinating question which one of those two fairly weak candidates would have beaten the other. But I mean, basically, Yvette Cooper's not as good as Theresa May. You know, like not, not least because one of them is the one who has survived as, as Home Secretary for longer than anyone. The other is the politician who allowed them to survive as <laughs> Home Secretary for, for longer than, than anyone. I mean, I just think the the problem with Yvette Cooper's campaign is she said nothing for three months and then started acting as if she was like Hillary Clinton or something after the voting had, had closed. She sort of turned into the refugee's friend, which to be give her credit as something that she has since taken up, plugged away at, done some good work on. Yeah, no. But I, you're right. She did discover a personality too late in that uh, contest I, I, to make a difference. I think the thing is, I think Yvette is very much like the kind of another well-known brand of Labour candidates. She could be Andrea Leadsom. She could win in the teeth of a recession. Right? No one is going to not... Well, no, some people would not vote for Labour because of Yvette Cooper because some of the things people she said about free movement. Yeah, and then there's that, that factor too, I guess. But I thought you were being the pro Yvette one. No, I know, uh, but I'm just like, saying I have members of my family who phone me up still now to complain about Ed Balls. I mean, so weirdly, my mum, who, like, you know, has bought every book that Virago have published in history, yeah. you know, like, single-parent family, occasionally phones me up to criticise me for saying something too right-wing on the blog or on Twitter, um, during the Labour leadership campaign said, I like Yvette, but I just don't like she's married to Ed Balls. And I'm just like, what? How, where has this come from? So my new, um, from my, in my new state's mum yeah. uh, interjection is that my mum is, is fine with Theresa May, which, again, you know, she's Worcester woman, swing voter, says that's what the Tory party think if 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 people who are just kind of okay with a that's that gets yeah. you a long way now I mean my mom thinks that Theresa May is you know like the devil but that is basically what she thinks about most Tory politicians so it's not really a useful yardstick Yeah my new state's for... mum is a bit less uh, firebrand leftist yeah. than your new state's mum Um but yeah so um I I basically think that the problem with Yvette's campaign is it was actually a bit like Ed Miliband trying to present himself as Obama 
he's not Obama. Yeah, and, and actually, the, the problem is, isn't Yvette Cooper was, was Sorry, running... Sorry, I just... I just the cringe. The thought, you know, Obama, this is a guy who can go and, like, who just can go and sing, who can go and do, like, rap stuff with Lin-Manuel Miranda and the... Can you imagine Ed, if Ed Miliband... Can you imagine if Ed Miliband broke into Amazing Grace at a black church? I would love to see that happen. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is... One of the one of the interesting things that we we should discuss at the time is I think there's an interesting gulf between how a lot of Labour politicians of that post nineteen ninety seven vintage see themselves and how they are actually seen yeah. by the voters. Um, I don't understand what it is about that in that that sort of set of intakes, but I think it definitely was an acute problem. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, she's just a more impressive politician. Well, on that note, let's uh, let's come back to it because who knows? By next week, everyone might have dropped out of the race. Michael Gove might have detonated another career. It's all to play for. Hi, I'm Caroline, and I'm Anna, and we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously, if you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash srsly. And now I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and our Staggers editor, Julia Rampant, to talk about the publication of the Chilcot Report. George, you were in the lock-in, which I think overstates how fun it must have been. But um, just tell us a bit about the what, what, you know, I mean, this is an epically long report. What was it actually like for you to try and kind of digest it very quickly? Were you, I mean, you presume there was an executive summary. Was anyone diving into volume eight while you were in this room together? Yeah, so the way it was organised is that we were all given the executive summary, as you say, which was about 150 pages. And also um, an early copy of the speech that John Chilcott delivered at the QET Centre press conference. And the 12 volumes of the 2.6 million word report itself were around the room. So you could dip into those as well. Uh, but 150 pages was, was enough for most in, in the three hours we had. And the first, first thing that struck me was just how sharply critical it was of Tony Blair. That was a suggestion by some that... This would be dismissed by critics as a whitewash, as the Hutton and, to a lesser extent, the Butler reports have been. I don't think I heard anyone call it a, a whitewash yesterday. It was it was devastating for Blair. And when he did deliver his his defence, and that, of course, went on for, for two hours, I think the, the toll it had taken on him showed. I think he knows that this has ended any hope he had of being vindicated on this issue and... Iraq will define his legacy and define it in in an incredibly poisonous way. It's been an incredible year, hasn't it, Julia, with both this and the Hillsborough inquests of finally things that are long-running sores, families really feeling that they've finally kind of got justice, really, that they've finally been heard. Yeah, I suppose the difference with the Hillsborough is that... um, once the decision had been made to to come out and actually um, pronounce the verdict, it was a kind of closure, whereas Iraq is still raging on and um, it's clear that we may have to intervene in the Middle East at some point in the future. So I think there's a lot more nervousness and panic around this at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something perhaps... I mean, George, to me, I, I, I was doing other things yesterday, imagine such a thing, but I, so I, I only dipped into the report rather than following it in kind of real time, which gives you a very different kind of uh, view of how things have gone. But to me, it felt like it had just devolved into an argument, Tony Blair, bad man or not. And with pretty much everybody saying, yes, bad man, terrible man. 
you know, actually, I mean, I think that's that is supported by the uh, report. But is that a helpful way of, of viewing this? Is that, does that actually get us anywhere? I mean, he's not going to be he's not running for prime minister again. So what can we learn from that? No, it's not particularly helpful. Um, there are obviously huge lessons for British foreign policy in, in, in general to be drawn from this. And although Chilcott's sharply critical of the, the Iraq war, the, the run up to it and and the planning afterwards, he says that intervention might have been necessary and justified in, in other circumstances. He certainly doesn't say that Britain shouldn't intervene in the future. And that's a point that David Cameron was very keen to emphasise yesterday. And, and the debate that we really need to have, given that the Middle East remains such a volatile region, is what role do we think we should play? And it were Britain to intervene in the future, or were a prime minister to decide we intervene, how could the military uh, Whitehall be better prepared than they were? I think that also that issue becomes more live in November if you assume that Hillary Clinton wins the White House because she is more minded to intervene than I think Obama is. Certainly over Syria, she was one of the voices who was saying that they did have to intervene. Now, Obama's always been very reluctant mm. to get involved in the Middle East. He certainly doesn't, he isn't, uh, you know, obsessed with the Israel-Palestine question, obsessed with the Middle East in the way that previous presidents, have, that certainly Bush and, and Blair were. But, um, Julia, I mean, do you think that, I mean, looking at Labour now, which is maybe a reductive way of looking, but it is our special expertise, it seems to me that immediately you had people saying, well, no one who ever voted for the Iraq war or supported it at the time can ever be Labour leader now. That's what we've, that's what we've learned from this. Yeah, I mean, I saw quite a few tweets pointing out a lot of those people have gone now. And just looking, I watched Robin Cook's resignation speech again, and it occurred to me that the House of Commons looked entirely different, actually. It was full of um, white men in suits, whereas now it's much more colourful. Mostly full of white men in suits, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, there's, I guess, a bit more colour now. Um, I mean, it was quite remarkable to see Jeremy Corbyn in that video uh, next to Robin Cook, and then to see him again apologising on behalf of the Labour Party. Um, but I, I think when you look at the evidence that has come through Chilcot, it's clear that a lot of people were um, misled at the highest levels and the cabinet wasn't even informed about the military op- option until right before the war was declared. I think one of the most interesting things I saw yesterday was a poll that showed how many asked how many people had they opposed the Iraq war and then looked back and, and actually looked at what the opinion polls were like at the time. I think a lot more people now remember that they were definitely had, had always been against it, um, which I think is, you know, which is, is fair enough. And actually, the other thing that I saw yesterday, which I hadn't seen for, for 10 years, was the, the way that the newspapers reported it at the time. I mean, I, I was a student at the time of the Iraq war. You were both younger, so presumably even less engaged in it. Oh, no, we were very engaged. Oh, really? uh, my my first march, actually, really? was yeah. the February 15th one, 2003. Yeah, see, for me it was fascinating. I was at uh, Oxford at the time and um, Will Straw was the president of the Oxford University Student Union. Obviously his father, Jack Straw, was a foreign secretary. That's before we came. Yeah, he was home secretary before. And so it was this massive, I mean, massive rupture. I don't. I just don't think that maybe anything that I've seen since in student politics has caused this. You know, we we knew that we were on the side of righteousness, and we, you know, and every there were very few people. I knew I had a few conservative friends actually who were in favour of it, but it was our defining political issue. Mm. Um, uh, tell me about what what was it like on the march for you, George? Mm, well, I remember it. Being, How old were you? You must be what, 16? I was about 16. Yeah. I remember feeling obviously dominated by the far left, the socialist workers with their, their sort of infamous uh, ubiquitous placards. But what was interesting, as Jeremy Corbyn actually pointed out in his response yesterday, was that it did attract figures from across the political spectrum. You had uh, the soft left of Labour there, those who stood with people like Robin Cook, 
you had Greens, you even had some Tories. Um, Lib Dems, actually ordinary members, Yeah, ordinary members of the public who wouldn't normally go on marches. So just as you saw people marching last weekend in favour of the, the EU, it did attract... I, mean, I think it's still the, the biggest demonstration in, in British political history. I mean, estimates vary, but I think it's most reckon around a million, million and a half were there. And Julie, what about you? Well, I was at school at the time and um, in Edinburgh, so quite far away from the London march. But actually, people in my school, there was a walkout of schools across Edinburgh. And uh, we were one of the few schools where the head teacher kind of gave permission. But a lot of the schools, people ran out against permission and hid in various streets and eventually got out to this march and they ended up um, beating on the doors of Edinburgh Castle. It was entirely organised by school kids and at the time they were ridiculed in a way but a lot of those people I knew personally and they continued to be involved in anti-Iraq demonstrations. Yeah I think what's interesting is now that you're beginning to see people who for that was their kind of political awakening are now in politics themselves so their whole political career you know happens in the in the shadow of it whereas I think for for older generations obviously they see it more perhaps in the context of other foreign policy disasters as well one of a continuing series. George where do you think what do you think will be the the legacy of this report in political terms? I think it confirms the what is now the consensus that the Iraq war was a mistake that it wasn't necessary that it didn't achieve its stated objectives I think it will make future prime ministers even more reluctant than they already are to intervene and especially post-Brexit I think it will add to the sense of the UK retreating from the more internationalist role that it had under under Tony Blair. Although I think that's a paradox in a way, isn't it? Because so much of the right-wing case for Brexit was based around the kind of, we don't even need you guys anyway. You know, that kind of idea about, we, you know, we've the sort of revival of empire or revival of us as a great seafaring power, all this kind of stuff. There is a strange paradox at the heart of that thinking is obviously Brexit does diminish us on the, on the world stage. It makes us less interesting and important. But at the same time, lots of people who were in favour of it, also really believe that Britain is still a kind of, you know, they can kind of go fifth biggest economy, although I think we are still now still the sixth biggest economy after the fall of um, the stock market. Um, Julia, yeah, for you, uh, looking at the, the political fallout from it yesterday, has it changed anything in the day-to-day politics that you're covering? In a way, it felt like a bit of a, um, a throwback to another time, because... I mean, it was one of these things that actually I thought probably Jeremy Corbyn was summing up in whether other people would say it aloud, but summing up the view of a lot of people that there was a a deep regret for this war. I mean, he went a bit further than maybe other people would have said. He also didn't go as far as to um, say that Blair was a war criminal and should be tried in The Hague, which is what grassroots often demand. So I suppose he stepped back from anything that would have been too confrontational. Although he does open up an interesting dividing line for any new Labour leadership election, mm. doesn't he, George? If you say, well, would you have apologized? Was it right to apologise on behalf of the party, going yes. farther than Ed Miliband did and saying, expressing general regret, but actually saying the Labour Party apologises for this? Mm. And although, as Julia said, a lot of the Labour figures associated with the war are no longer in Parliament, uh, two key figures did vote for the war in, in 2003. Uh, Deputy Leader Tom Watson, who looks quite uncomfortable next to Jeremy Corbyn at, at times yesterday, and Angela Eagle, one of the putative leadership challengers, um, who I'm, I'm sure would regret her opposition to the war, but will obviously face demands now to echo Jeremy Corbyn's apology. And that was seen within Labour as a significant moment, because although some were saying yesterday that Ed Miliband had already apologised for Iraq, if you listen back to his 2010 conference speech, he actually said, I thought the war was wrong. 
he didn't go as far as to to apologize and that certainly would have been a dramatic moment given that um his brother was obviously one of those who supported it so this was a moment of catharsis for for labor's left a moment that they'd been been waiting for it was a promise jeremy corbyn had made during his campaign and decided to delay until the Chilcot report was published. And given the pressure he's under at the moment, with 80% of MPs having said they have no confidence in him, the timings turned out to be perfect for him. Because yesterday, I think even Tory MPs were saying to me they thought he had a good day in the House. He made a calm, uh, quite dignified statement. He didn't even mention Tony Blair, uh, let alone make uh, fierce political attacks on him. And... Yeah, he got the tone right in not turning it into a kind of into Labour Party bickering, right? Yes. About, you know, Tony Blair was wrong and I'm right. But keeping the focus very much on the people who, who lost their lives because of the mistake. Yeah, I thought that was I thought it was a very interesting day in British politics. I, it was less fractious than I thought it would be, I mm. guess. Because as you say, the, the report itself left little room for argument. It was so conclusively damning of, of a whole range of things. Well, um, thank you both for joining. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Joining us. And now welcome to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. One of the things that you have asked us this week is, in case you didn't know, in case you needed another leadership election, the Greens are currently having um, a leadership election caused by Natalie Bennett stepping down. So we currently have ones in UKIP. If you're very unlucky, we might run you through the candidates for the UKIP um, election at some point. But let's first of all, let's focus on the on the Greens. It seems to me it's pretty cut and dried who's actually going to win it, right? Yes, it was very hard to see past the joint ticket of, I'm going to mispronounce his surname, Caroline Lucas and Jonathan Bartleby. Uh, he's one of those ones where I just find the... The Scrivener. Um, but yeah, so he, uh, Caroline Lucas obviously requires no introduction. He is the director of, e- of Ecclesiastica, which is a kind of lefty uh, Christian think tank. He's a veteran of Yes to AV. He has been the candidate in Lambeth. Um, where you would imagine, although they're not going to take down Chakramuna anytime soon, the council, the Labour council has made a lot of unpopular decisions as part of how it has dealt with uh, cuts being devolved down to it and it made a lot of people very angry. So you think that they've probably got a good chance of becoming at least a strong second party and maybe even running that council. But the advantage that that joint leadership gives them is that Caroline Lucas is obviously their best asset, right? That's fairly non-controversial. The difficulty is she also has to be a fairly good constituency MP there is not. There are very few votes in Brighton, and she doesn't have to earn herself, as it were. Mm. Uh, so, and if there are boundary changes, she will get new voters. It may be, become tricky. She may have to vanish from the national scene. And then they've got someone who is actually ready for prime time, who can step into that void. Uh, you know, uh, it's quite a good sort of mentorship kind of idea, right? That you kind of grooming operation. Oh yeah, and I also think it's a nice idea. Uh, one of the things that the Greens can do, because they're not 
let's face it, competing for national power at the moment, is they can be somewhere which suggests ideas which are worthy of uh, further discussion. This uh, is very true. Actually, universal basic income, which was their one of their policies at the last election, is now something that John McDonnell said he would look into a pilot of it. It's now being... I mean, I don't... I think there are huge problems with it, but it's certainly it's something that's been tested in Utrecht. Um, Switzerland considered it. It's something that is an interesting idea that even if it doesn't end up being taken up, it has driven the conversation about what work means in the 21st century and what a standard of decent standard of living can be achieved for people in the 21st century. That is a kind. I know that's a sort of you think think tanks kind of do some of that for Labour, but that's sort of also the the idea of a, of a, part, a party like the Greens is that they can they can make suggestions that come from the outside of discourse into into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, obviously we we shouldn't forget. Then, for example, independence of the Bank of England or something which started life as a, a Liberal Democrat policy uh, idea. And now, of course, it is probably the most successful uh, economic policy innovation of the last 30 years um, introduced by, by Labour, of course. So, you know, there, there are lots of values to it. I think co-leadership is a, a nice and interesting idea. They've done it before, but they've never had as big a platform for it as they do now. Um yeah, so that's kind of a bit... Kind of, the interesting thing is the deputy leadership race where Amelia Womack and Shara Ali are running for re-election. Again, they're probably well-favoured to, to, to win it. Uh, the interesting thing, of course, will be what their numbers are like. Um, we know that they have lost some activists post-Corbyn. Corbyn. Mm. Uh, we also know that they have gained some activists... But so they lost some activists post Corbyn being elected. We also know that they've lost some activists uh, because, wow, I'm going for all the unpopular opinions, because frankly, Caroline Lucas is a more impressive centre forward for left wing politics than Jeremy Corbyn. Sorry, that just, I'm sorry, they just like disputing the shape of the earth. Uh, and so some people have kind of gone back. And so it'll be interesting to see what the uh, size of the electorate is, because suddenly all of the claims about memberships surges or whatever will be stress tested by this uh this this new electorate oh, that's yeah. uh, that's a nice note to end on you've been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis with stephen bush our producer is india book and our music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons you can find us on itunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.